welcome to episode 43 of the Tech Done Right podcast, TableXI's podcast about building better software, careers, companies, and communities. I'm Noel Rappin. In this episode, we're talking about the Ruby community and how it has extended itself outward into other languages and tools. My guests are James Edward Gray and Steve Klobnik. They both have extensive experience as Ruby developers, writers, speakers, and teachers, and they have both brought that expertise to other language groups. We're going to talk both about the technical aspects of these different tools and also the cultural aspects. What does the Ruby community bring to Elixir or to Rust? But before we start the show, I have a few quick messages. TableXI is now offering training for developer and product teams. Topics include testing, refactoring legacy JavaScript, and career development. For more information, email us at workshops at tablexi.com or hit our website at tablexi.com slash workshops. And I haven't mentioned it at the top of the show very much in the last few months, but if you like the show, a review on Apple Podcasts would be great and really help other people find the show. And now here's my conversation with Steve and James. Uh, Steve, can you say a little bit about yourself? Hi, everybody. I'm Steve. I am currently working on the Rust programming language um, for Mozilla and uh, previously wrote a whole lot of Ruby code, but it's been a little while. And James. I am James Gray. I go by James Edward Gray II on the internet. I have also was in the Ruby community. I'm still in the Ruby community, but in a, in a smaller role uh, these days, like Steve. And while he's been playing around in Rust, I've been playing around in Elixir. Yeah, so the reason I wanted to have you both here is that both of you were, at one point, extremely prominent members of the Ruby community. You were both spent a lot of time developing Ruby code, and, and you have both like become – moved on is probably the wrong way to put it, but you both – Ruby is no longer exclusively what you do or even a little bit of what you do. And what I wanted to talk about here was I feel like there's this trend of Ruby developers heading off uh, to other – tools that fill different needs for them. And then, so there is both like a a technical track where developers need to do something that Ruby doesn't do. uh, And so they gravitate towards certain tools and and maybe away from certain other tools. Uh, And then there's a community track where the Ruby community is, is somewhat opinionated uh, and and may or may not bring those, uh, bring those opinions or that some qualities to the the language groups that they, they they tend to, to go after. So I guess I want to start with like, what, what kinds of needs did you have that ha- made you uh, start using languages other than Ruby for regular development? That's a cool question. I want to hear Steve's answer. So I guess the first thing that I should say is like, it's not because I do not like Ruby. So uh, like I have a Ruby tattooed on my body. It's not going away anytime soon. Like even though I don't write Ruby code at all anymore, basically, it's still like extremely like a thing that is fond to me, fond memories. But Part of the reason why I decided to kind of move on is because I felt like I had accomplished everything that I could accomplish in the Ruby world and that I wasn't really growing as a person because, you know, I sort of had like maxed out on like understanding Ruby and Rails to such a degree that there was not really that much more to learn. And therefore, I felt a little stagnant, to be honest. So you went to Rust. What kinds of things do you learn from Rust that you didn't learn in Ruby? Yeah, so Rust is a programming language, fundamentally. Um, We are still kind of sorting out the best way to describe it because we used to talk about it in certain terms and those terms are kind of meaningless. So the way we're sort of thinking about it today is like Rust is a language that empowers people to work at any level of the stack that they want to do. So like you can write web apps in Rust. You can also write operating systems in Rust. 
And um, it was originally sponsored by Mozilla to improve Firefox um, by rewriting chunks of Firefox in that code. And as of last year, that's now actually true, but that took like, almost a decade. Um, but beyond Mozilla, it's being used by a ton of people in a ton of places for many, many different things. But that's kind of the idea is that like a language lets you scale both up and down the stack. Okay. And, and so what did, what do you get from working that, that like, what itch does that scratch for you? Yeah. So on a more like programming language nerd answer is like Rust and Ruby are in many ways sort of diametrically opposite. And I really like learning things that are significantly different from what you currently know, because that means you learn a lot. So one of the most obvious and huge things is Rust is incredibly strongly statically typed, and Ruby is not, <laughs> to say the yeah. least. I've gone back and forth between preferring static and dynamic typing throughout my life. I actually started with uh, dynamic language and then moved to statically typed ones for a while and then moved back into dynamic ones. And so this is like a constant ping pong back and forth. But, um, you know, by the time I was sort of at the end of my Ruby time, I was really, really into the dynamically typed mindset. And so getting into the statically typed one was a, a very, very huge difference. Um, another one is that Rust does not have a garbage collector or a runtime. And so it exposes sort of these like low level details significantly more than Ruby does. Like Ruby is trying to make your code look as nice as possible. And we try to make Rust code look good. But, you know, there's sort of also other concerns that are sort of um, hard constraints on the design. But we actually, like, still learned from Ruby in many ways. So our closure syntax is almost identical to Ruby's closure syntax, which is kind of interesting. Um, and our build tool is, like, literally written by Yehuda. So in many ways, it's sort of like Bundler, but, like, you know, a little more like NPM and all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of, like, interplay between, you know, those sort of two worlds. Yehuda there is Yehuda Katz, who is a, used to be... A- core member of the, of the Rails team, and then moved on to design Ember and has also worked on Rust quite a bit. Yep. Awesome. Uh, I just learned that Steve and I have Ruby tattoos in common, which is amazing. Nice. I also have a Ruby tattoo. Now I feel like my, ro- my, my love for Ruby is in question. <laughs> That's right. It is. It's in question. But uh, Steve and I also have in common that we've played with Rust, also, although him much more than me, of course. But uh, I have played with Rust quite a bit. And uh, I love what Steve said about, you know, trying to get some new ideas and uh, see things that are fundamentally different. Um, That is also the reason uh, I go to different languages and things like that, Uh, and Rust in particular was quite brain-bending for me. Uh, So I'm going to mention some things I thought were cool about it that really made me think about things in a different way. And if Steve wants to elaborate on any of those, because I will surely get parts of it wrong, uh, (laughs) and he absolutely can. But um, what Steve was talking about, about having no garbage collection, Rust has this uh, memory model, I, I guess is what I would call it, called ownership. Uh, and that is just a super cool concept that took me a fair bit to get my brain around. But after I did, I looked at computing like completely differently because I can remember back to uh, models like, um, uh, what is Pearl's old garbage collection called? Marcus. Uh, Marcus, yeah. I mean, yes. that's, that's Ruby's too, for at least until very recently. 
Markets. So, okay. Right. Yeah. Garbage collection is the process by which, uh, the, the runtime system itself clears unused memory. Mark and sweep is an algorithm for doing that, uh, where memory that is in use is tagged by the runtime and periodically the runtime goes through and, and clears out memory that it does not have the mark. So Rust's ownership model is different than that. Yes, actually. And I'm glad you said that, Noel, because you made me realize I, I did say the wrong thing. Uh, mark and sweep is a good example in the spectrum, but actually I was thinking of reference counting. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Pearl's older model before that, where it used to, you know, every time something's allocated uh, or used, a reference is bumped up. And then uh, when it's, you know, goes out of scope, the reference is bumped down. And when it hits zero, then that thing can be collected, right? Right, right. So yeah, when in reference in a reference counting garbage collector, when you uh, reference a variable, like its count goes up, and it is susceptible to problems where circular references never get garbage collected because they never go down to zero. Exactly, and you have to you have to take steps to avoid that. So the rest ownership model, I'm almost scared to describe this, especially with Steve on the podcast, but I'm going <laughs> to It's fine. The rest ownership model is that when memory is allocated, the, the chunk of code that allocated that memory owns it, uh, so to speak. And if you hit the end of that chunk of code, then the ownership is gone. Therefore, it can be collected immediately because it's not used anymore. So then if you want to pass that, to something else, you have to kind of transfer ownership to that thing that you passed it to. And then that thing owns it uh, for the time period that it runs. And it's just like super great. Like if you've ever had to do something manual, like manage that in C, right, where you're allocating and freeing memory or something like that, there's just so many ways it can go horribly wrong. But Russ kind of flips it on its head and makes it very explicit that like this chunk of code owns it. Uh, then it's handed off to this other chunk of code that will be in charge now. And unless, you know, ownership is transferred again, you always know exactly where something will stop being viable. Does that seem like a fair description? Yeah. See, you were nervous, but that's a fantastic description. Actually. The only other thing I would add on is that this all happens at compile time. There's no runtime component to any of this. Right. So the Rust, the Rust compiler can determine at compile time whether a variable will be in memory based on its ownership. And if it determines that it won't be, it does not let the program compile. Is that a fair way to yep. Yeah. I have, I have no real Rust experience. Which leads me to another amazing thing about Rust. And if you've never seen this, it's like a wonder of modern computing that you must behold. In, uh, you know how in Ruby... There are commonly examples in books where they'll uh, make a bunch of threads, spawn a bunch of threads, and then make some global counter and have all the threads try to bump the global counter like a thousand times. So then, you know, if you spawn 10 threads, they show you that the number in the end is not 10,000. And that way you get to see that they were colliding over this, uh, this variable, right? And the problems of, of shared memory, right? Yep. If you write that same program in Rust, it will fail to p compile your program because it's incorrect. Uh, incorrect because the shared access is is not viable. 
not safe. Yeah, it's not safe. It's, it's more than just the shared access. It knows that it's being shared in a way that is not defined behavior. If you included a synchronization primitive, it understands that that's true and would let you compile that. So like if you wrap the number in a mutex, then it'll be like, cool. Like It's not that shared memory is the problem. It's shared memory without like the safety aspect. Unprotected shared memory. Right. Yeah. Right. I, I, I feel like I still need to be like the finer guy. It's very helpful. A mutex is a structure that you place around a variable that might be shared, which effectively uh, limits access to that variable to one other thread at a time. Yeah. The name comes from mutual exclusion. So the idea is that only one thing can access it at a given time. Yeah. But I mean, seriously, the first time you see a Rust program not compile, because it's like, you know what? You really don't want to do that. You're shooting yourself in your foot and I'm going to save you. It's amazing. <laughs> so I feel like I have done some of the other languages that we were going to talk about, but I have not done Rust really at all. How much time do you spend just arguing with the compiler, trying to get it to compile things? Like what, what happens in that case? What you, You've put together this system. It's got... You set up shared access to a thread and it doesn't compile. And presumably it tells you a reason why it doesn't compile. What does it say to you? Yeah. So there's sort of like two components of this. The first one is, is that when you start programming in Rust, this happens a lot. Like you spend a lot of time figuring out like, oh yeah, the compiler said this is wrong. Why is it wrong? And we try to make good error messages to like make that sort of a reasonable experience. But eventually once you sort of, a lot of people sort of describe it as like, within like two weeks to a month or two, all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, I haven't been struggling with this for a while. And it just kind of like works. So at some point, you like internalize these rules in a way that it ends up being purely helpful. Like today, most of the time when I get one of these errors, I'm like, oh, I know exactly what that means. I know exactly how to fix it. And it's more like a test failing than it is like a colossal struggle. But at the start, it's definitely um, a challenge. Yeah, I, I had a similar experience, not with Rust, but with Elm, which was the first time I had programmed in a strongly typed language in some time. And, and Elm, James, as I'm sure you know, is known for like exceptionally good compiler error messages. We modeled ours after Elm's for that yeah. reason. I had a similar experience where I started with it, spent a fair amount of time just sort of arguing with the compiler over the over like, I know that this should be possible. But the error messages were tremendously helpful in explaining what I needed to do. And then again, yeah, after a, a, a relatively short but not you know not non-existent period of time, I did I saw less and less of that. So yeah, you do get acclimated to it. I feel the same way. Just kind of to pile on uh, one, I do want to say I agree about Elm's error messages. And if I were going to name any one language that can give it a run for its money in the error message department, it's Rust. They're really good. Um, and I'm always surprised by like Rust will often correctly intuit what I was trying to do. It will say things like, you've messed this up. Looks like maybe you were trying to do this. Maybe you should go read this web page to explain how this works or whatever. It's amazing. One thing I like about the Elm error messages is they will sometimes say, I found this error here, but it often means that the real error is a few lines is like the previous statement. So you should look there too, yeah. which is very helpful. One other rest thing on that point though. So one thing we're introducing soon, James, is a tool that will take what the compiler thinks your code should be and you can like run a mode that will just apply it and change your code for you automatically. That's awesome. And we sort of have a confidence level. So only ones that we're pretty confident will actually fix your code, it will give you. And the ones that's not sure about it won't. So that's kind of like a fun thing we're working on. 
That's super cool. And you can see by what Steve just said there that like a lot of thinking goes into Rust error messages. And it's extremely obvious when you get them. But yeah, I pretty much agree with what Steve said earlier when I first started trying to program Rust. Uh, For me, it was absolutely the ownership model. And almost every error I got was related to not understanding ownership and how it works. But then after a certain time period, you feel like you get over that hump and you're like, oh, I understand what this means when it's saying this to me and you know what to do about it. It does feel like Ruby developers kind of moved towards other tools that seem to have a similar level of respect for the developer's day-to-day happiness, that they have really good error messages or really nice syntax or something that is designed really with the developer experience in mind. Part of it for us is that, frankly, like, you know, nobody tries to make a language that's hard to learn, but Rust has these low-level constraints on its design that we can't possibly, you know, break. And so those are more important than the learnability. And so Rust is just kind of inherently a little difficult to learn. And so we knew that if we wanted people to use it, we needed to give them as much help as possible to get over that hump as quickly as possible. And we have a number of features that are kind of like in the pipeline or have recently landed that are all kind of aimed at this, how do we drop the learning curve while not still giving up on the like actual constraints of the design that we need to have. And so for us, more than many other languages, it's like an existential threat. If Rust was too hard to learn and had terrible error messages, the language would die. And so beyond even just the fact that we also program in Rust and want it to be nice, it's like extremely important for the language to actually be successful in the first and place. And then they have people like Steve Klabnik writing books about the Rust programming language so as to help bring people on board as well. Yeah. We're super lucky to have a bunch of different books now, and they're all pretty good. Documentation, too. Documentation's really good. Thanks. <laughs> kind of to expand on what Steve was saying there about, you know, Rust has this known minus that it has to compensate for, which leads to the great error messages. I kind of feel like that is kind of the reason that people end up looking at different languages and things. And I'm going to take this probably in a totally unexpected direction, but I have a young daughter and we spend some time playing around on the computer together. And so one of the things I play with a lot now is Scratch. Scratch is outstanding. Yeah. Yeah. I've been aware of the Scratch project for a super long time because I was a grad student in educational technology when its predecessors were being development developed. Uh, so yeah, Scratch comes out of the MIT Media Lab. It is a graphical programming language that you create where you create programs by dragging components uh, together. It, its long-term predecessors are like Logo and, and Star Logo and a couple of other things that, that are probably not of interest of you, but it's a long-running MIT media project that's very cool uh, intro to programming runtime. Yeah, it's fantastic. And My daughter and I, we have this book of Scratch projects that we work through. It has us do all these things, and then we play around with it. And I have to tell you that, like, Scratch is a programming language that absolutely everybody should go work with at some point because there are some things in it that none of our uber-powerful Ruby, Rust, Elixir included have. And uh, the number one feature is that I would name is uh, it's impossible to write a syntactically invalid Scratch program. Right, because the you're building it in this sort of graphical environment and the components fit together. It's been a couple years since I've used it, but they sort of 
you sort of plug them in and they will only fit in syntactically correct ways. Is that, am I getting that right? It's like Lego. Yeah, like Lego. Uh, I completely love that we have gone from Rust to Scratch right now. That is like, I'm tremendously happy about this. Yeah, this is my jam. <laughs> but like, it's great. I spend all of my days, you know, writing programs and we just talked about how you know, there's this period where you and the compiler have to learn how to get along and communicate to each other so that you can understand what it's trying to tell you. And we think, you know, we're programmers. We use all these over, uber powerful programming languages. The language my daughter's using makes it so you don't have to do these things. Like, that's kind of amazing, right? Yeah, if, if the metric is, like, you should learn programming languages that teach you something new about programming, I would definitely recommend that, that everybody take a look at least at Scratch. It's, it's really fun, and it's really neat. And just so uh, people don't think, oh, this is, like, you need to Scratch. It's a kid's learning environment and stuff like that. Uh, actually, there are multiple things, uh, multiple languages, uh, quote-unquote, that allow you to program in a way that you cannot make a syntactically invalid program. So uh, in game programming, it's actually becoming semi-common. There's a game creation uh, toolkit called Game Salad uh, that programs similar to Scratch in that you kind of drag and drop things or insert known things. Uh, There's also another game studio called uh, Game Maker Studio 2, Uh, And that one you can drop into the code if you want to, but it does also have this, like, I don't know how you describe it, kind of a visual DSL or something that, uh, you know, while you're using that, you can't make syntactically uh, invalid programs. And that particular program lets you uh, switch back and forth between the two. So there are people out there programming in their job, making games and selling them for money that use programming languages where they cannot write in syntactically invalid program. That's pretty awesome, I would say. Many, many years ago, I worked in ProGraph, uh, which is a language that has basically died, but was a, a, a graphic language. The, the ProGraph programs looked more or less like flowcharts, uh, object-oriented, dynamically sco- dynamically typed. And it also had the feature, because it was you were dragging boxes together, that it was, I don't think impossible, but it was extremely difficult to come up with an actual syntax error in it. Uh, it died for other reasons, but yeah, I miss it a lot. That was fun. It's great to have these options to have, and and it makes me think about programming differently. Like uh, nowadays, when I'm programming, I think, why are we spending all these time, all this time editing text files? Like Emacs and Vim are amazing, and the reason is that they have to be because we we do this kind of horrible thing all the time of translating text to code. And I don't know why we don't have more tools that basically allow us to edit the abstract syntax tree directly, right? There's lots of reasons. (laughs) So one of the problems is that most programming languages, ASTs are just not stable at all. What we're talking about here is AST abstract syntax tree, and that is the internal representation of the code after it has been parsed that is used by the interpreter to uh, use the interpreter or the compiler to actually be the instructions. That's a slight oversimplification, but I think that's basically it. That's pretty reasonable, yeah. Uh, Some languages you can. Most modern small talk environments let you directly edit the AST 
But yeah, so Steve, you were saying for some languages, it's not stable. Yeah. Yeah. So small talk is like not changing anytime soon. So it's totally fine. But for any like real production implementation of a language, like that's considered an internal compiler detail that gets shifted around for the compiler's needs, not for users. And this has actually been a really huge problem um, in Rust because our macros are AST based. And so there's a lot of issues there. Basically, like, yeah, the problem is, is that those internal representations aren't generally stable and keeping them stable is like a lot of work. So that's one of the biggest reasons. I totally agree that this model of programming like would be awesome if it existed. But people have been saying it for like 30 years, maybe even 40 years at this point, And it has not happened yet. So I am not holding my breath that it's going to happen for real anytime soon. But it would be so cool, for sure. Yeah, that's totally fair. I'm not, I guess, saying as much that, like, I can't believe those things exist more than, like, they kind of do exist in, in languages like Scratch and stuff like that. And even not editing the AST directly, you can impose more things that the language handles for you. So like um, Steve, you mentioned earlier, Rust's amazing project management system is what I'm going to call it, I guess. Cargo, right? Is that what it's called? Yeah, uh-huh. totally. We used to say like package yeah. manager and build tool, but like whatever, it's you're totally right. Yes. Projects. Package manager, build tool. Yeah. So at, for example, there in Ruby, uh, we decide where all the files go and how things get put together and what references what. Uh, and things like that. And and when I used Ruby, I thought that was amazing. And like, to the point where I think I would have fought to defend it, right? Like, we have to have this, we have to be able to make our own decisions and, and all of that kind of stuff. In Rust, um, I'm not sure you can't uh, not do that. But the convention is they use cargo, and that tells you where things go. And it decides how things get stitched together. Am I representing that fairly? Yes. Yeah. And uh, and after having used uh, Cargo and Elixir has a very similar tool called Mix. Uh, and, and even in the Ruby community these days, I would say it's more normal to let Bundler make a lot of those decisions for us uh, and to start gems with things like Bundler New. And now that that's happened, I would never want to go back. Like, I love it that that kind of stuff gets handled for me. And then, you know, when I want to build my project or whatever, turn it into an executable, whatever, the tool already knows how to do that because it knows the layout of things. And there's no reason our editors couldn't adapt to be aware of those constraints and stuff. So instead of doing file new, navigating to a directory and making sure to name my file correctly so that it matches the name of whatever module I'm creating, there's no reason I couldn't tell my editor I want to add a module, type in the name for it, and it do the correct thing. Yeah, that would be super slick. Even a lot of the JavaScript frameworks are kind of settling on file layout and thing like, things like that. And, and in ES6 modules where you don't actually na- necessarily name the export from the file, it's the, the build tool just gives it a name based on the file name, if I'm describing that comprehensively but yeah you have this sense of you have this 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 potential complexity being sort of narrowed down i do think that like we as developers tend to treat complexity that we have mastered 
as like foundational to what you need to know to be a programmer uh, and therefore resist efforts to get rid of it, even when that would be a great thing. Definitely. Right. James, your story reminds me of something for me that was almost the exact opposite, which was that a way that Rust taught me about Ruby. So when refinements were being proposed in Ruby, I was very publicly and loudly against the idea of refinements. And like to the point of like sitting down and talking to Matt's and Hedius and a bunch of other people like at multiple conferences and like really publicly being like, I think this is a really bad idea. But then I was right around the time when I sort of like left Ruby or maybe I just stopped caring about it. And I went off into Rust land and Rust has this concept called traits. And there's one aspect of traits that works literally the same way refinements do. Basically, you can sort of think in Ruby terms that a trait is kind of like how we use modules. It defines some code and then you like mix it into other code to some degree. But in Rust, you can only have that mixing in happen if you import the trait into the scope that you're using it, which is sort of similar to the refinements model. This refinement only applies if you import it into the scope. And I found myself loving this feature that in Ruby I had fought so hard against. And I don't think that I have still yet to fully like uncognitive dissonance myself about why that was the case. Um, and I don't know how much refinements are used in today's Ruby or if it's generally considered to have been a success or a failure, but I definitely like my experience in this other language has made me think that they're a great idea now, not a terrible idea. I have literally never seen a refinement in the wild yet. I haven't either. I want to kind of add on to that though. So uh, a witcher has some not quite refinements like things, but it does have things uh, like import where you can basically bring in functions from other modules and stuff like that. But one of the things that I feel like is a kind of difference between Elixir and Ruby in this area is Elixir has the philosophy that things that can be should be explicit. So like refinements, I believe, are that way in Ruby in that you're guaranteed to be able to scroll up to see where the refinement came from. But that's always true in Elixir. In Elixir, if if you call something in the middle of a file and it's not defined in that file, you are guaranteed to be able to scroll up and find an import or an alias or something that would tell you where that thing came from. And to me, that makes like all the difference in the world. I have no problem with magic when I can uh, figure out where it comes from, right? But it's, I think one of the problems Ruby gets into sometimes is that there's all this magic. And then when you're like, where does that come from? That's a really hard question to answer sometimes. It's often hard, especially for people new to Ruby and Rails, to, to figure out where things are defined in that. Okay, James, tell me what brought you to Elixir and, and, and tell me a little bit more generally about what Elixir is and what it tries to do. Cool. I actually started looking at Elixir several years ago. A buddy of mine that I used to work with was pretty into it. He was like, you should check this out. It's, uh, it's pretty amazing. And uh, at the time... Uh, I looked at it, and I, I did think it was neat, uh, but I was really comfortable, I guess, in Ruby land, and I, I don't feel like I really gave it a very fair shake. Sorry, Nathan. But uh, I kind of blew it off. And then I kept running into these problems uh, over and over in my job where I'm building a web app, but what we're doing is something like in education where 
giving students a quiz. And so we go back and forth with them over several questions for a period of time while they're in the computer lab, maybe at, you know, 30 minutes to an hour. Or at a market research company, we're getting some of our community members to take a survey to give us some information on something. And so we're going back and forth with them, you know, over this period of time where we're giving them a survey and then we're done with them for a while. And what I kept finding is this is terrible for the traditional model of web app, right? Like because a web app is stateless, the first thing we do in every single request is a whole bunch of queries to reestablish the state of the world and where we are, right? And then you have this back and forth that you're having with them, quiz, survey, whatever. It has context and it has like, you know, where you are in the process. Like you don't want to ask them question one, they answer question one, and then you ask them question one again. You want to ask them question two, which requires you to remember like where you were. In one of my projects, this was a particular pain point because we were getting pretty popular and and having a lot of incoming uh, traffic. And then when you're in the middle of that traffic, doing all those queries to reestablish the state of the world is expensive. And there's lots of solutions around this in the web world, uh, you know, introducing tools like Redis and stuff like this uh, to cache the key bits of what you're doing right now so that you can get those faster. And But it's still the same fundamental problem in that you're trying to do step one, then step two, then step three. What happens is when they come in wanting step three, you spend a bunch of energy reminding yourself that you're on step three. Has anybody else felt this pain yep. writing with web apps? Totally. Cool. So this is like yeah, a thing of web apps. It's not all web apps. Obviously, a blog does not have this problem or whatever. There's, there's lots of web apps that don't have this problem, but some do. So uh, Elixir is designed in such a way Uh, And this is not unique to web apps, but it's designed in such a way that it just kind of naturally solves this problem. And it's actually like not a thing. And the reason for that is that Elixir, like Erlang, runs on uh, the Beam virtual machine. And inside the Beam, you have this amazing concurrency model called the actor model generally, and in Elixir and Erlang, you can spin up processes. A process is kind of a self-contained bubble of logic and the state that it's working on. And that may sound a little bit like an object, but it's uh, it kind of is and it's kind of not uh, in that it is it is sort of like an object and that you know there's this behavior and the state that it's working on. Uh, but also, by definition, all of these things are concurrent. So, like, whether you want it or not, it's concurrent and you have to deal with it. But the advantage to something like that is if you are solving one of these, you know, remember the context of what you're doing right now problems, that's basically just almost free. For example, when somebody starts taking a quiz, I can spin up a process on that particular process is, you know, for that student taking that quiz. And in there, I can program almost linearly, right? Do step one, then do step two, then do step three. 
because it's only that student that's being tracked by this given process. And so, and then we have ways to keep the context when we're talking to that process. So like WebSockets are a huge thing in Elixir because, uh, you know, it allows us to keep that conversation going. And then you, you have things like, well, you know, wouldn't you be spinning up a process for every single student taking a quiz at the same time? Or wouldn't that lead to just tons of processes? And the answer is yes. And luckily the Beam can launch literally hundreds of thousands of processes before you even have to start turning any dials, right? And then if you do turn dials, then, then obviously you can get that number way higher. So what led me to Elixir was the desire to address this problem that I kept running into over and over again in a different way and finding a language because a buddy of mine had had me look at it at one point, made me realize that it was totally capable of handling this problem in a completely different way. And that got me to playing with it and using it for very practical reasons. So the, the virtual machine that it's built on is designed for massively parallel telecommunications. It, it predates the web, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, it's uh, been running the majority of the telecom industry for over 30 years. And for a long time, the way to communicate with that virtual machine was Erlang, which is a language that is not known for having super friendly syntax. I don't know it myself. But then Elixir was designed... I'm trying to, uh, you're going to correct me because I'm going to be wrong, but Elixir was designed specifically to be a more like friendly to dynamic language programmers syntax for interacting with this massively parallel virtual machine. Yeah, that's, I think you've got pretty much all of that correct. So Erlang was the, yeah, pretty much the only game in town for running your code on the beam, which is this amazing architecture I've been describing. And uh, Erlang is somewhat unpopular for its unusual syntax. Um, that said, I, I will say that I'm pretty sure it's mostly because of what we're familiar with. There seem to be kind of multiple paths in language syntax. And most of our modern languages have a C-like syntax, which I believe actually comes from Ada, maybe? I may have that wrong. Ada is a Pascal variant, so yeah, that's not... It, no, uh, yeah, C, C has some predecessors, but C itself was the big influence on almost everything else. Okay, cool. So uh, anyways, they have a similar C-like syntax. Uh, Erlang went a different way. I'm pretty sure it adopts its syntax from Prolog, I believe yep. is the imp- inspiration. Right. And it looks different to us. Uh, so Elixir's syntax is directly inspired from Ruby. So if you are a Rubyist, then uh, you probably feel very at home uh, in Elixir's syntax. So it's not like that. Ironically, though, if you get deep enough into learning Elixir, you almost have to learn some Erlang along the way. You will be reading uh, some Erlang and before, when I tried to learn Erlang on my own, I did have that feeling of kind of off-putting syntax. But now that I understand the beam and the environment it's running in and I'm learning it through Elixir, it's funny, but the syntax doesn't seem to bother me anymore. So I, I have a pretty good idea that it's 
probably just more what we're familiar with than, than, you know, the syntax being particularly terrible. So to pick up on a little bit of the theme here, uh, what did Elixir teach you about programming and what does it do to help the developer experience? So Elixir is a functional programming language. That's not to say that it's better than an object-oriented programming language, but like Steve said, it's almost fundamentally different from them, right? You go to Rust because uh, you can learn a lot about typing and how types can help you create better programs. And similarly, functional programming makes you think about things in totally different ways. So, for example, functional programming uh, often includes things like immutable data structures or pattern matching uh, and things like that. And when you have those things, you solve problems in slightly different ways and you do things in different ways and you gain advantages for that, in my opinion, the ways that it pushes you to think about those things. And even non-strict functional languages are starting to recognize this and adopt several things like we're seeing JavaScript get some you know, if not full-on pattern matching, at least destructuring and stuff. So part of the reason why that's happening is because Rust has pattern matching, which is from its descendants from, like, ML family languages, which, like, sort of share this history. But the reason that JavaScript proposal is being made is because the person who made it had started learning Rust and liked it so much that it's moving into JavaScript. And so it's, like, all these different... It's, like, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying it's, like, many different influences come through in different ways, which is really neat. Now I'm going to ask you to define pattern matching. Pattern matching is this construct in many programming languages that allows you to um, it's, think of it like an if statement, but uh, much, much more powerful. So instead of like if else, if else, if else, you say like, I would like to match against this thing as a pattern. And then you provide a number of different patterns and what you want to happen if they match. And by pattern, usually what I mean is it's uh, like some sort of syntax that sort of looks like the thing you're trying to match against. So maybe if you had an object, it would have like the uh, members of that object, or if it was a number, it would be a number or whatever. But it kind of gives you this this ability to do like multiple if else's in a much, much cleaner and nice way. And, and depending on how heavily your language supports it, it can really be a major impact on what you're doing. So for example, in Elixir, uh, when you are defining your functions parameters, your formal parameters, those are pattern matches. And so you can you do the pattern match right there when you define what the parameter is. So that can be things like it has to be a map, uh, which is equivalent to a hash in Ruby, uh, with these keys or whatever. And that can actually define multiple function heads for the same function using different pattern matches. And when uh, Elixir ends up calling the the function, it runs through those pattern matches to find the one that matches. And so uh, it only ends up executing that version of the function. So one, this keeps your function shorter. Two, makes it so that if uh, none of the patterns match, you get an immediate error, like, you're calling this thing that doesn't make sense. It doesn't take this kind of data and work on it and uh, makes uh, error handling and stuff like that much nicer. Yehuda and I came into the Rust world. I came in first and then wouldn't stop talking about it. And so Yehuda tried it out and he liked it too. And 
one of the things that I like to say, so Rust has people that come from many different backgrounds, but the people who come from a Ruby or Python or JavaScript background, the influence they had on Rust development was not accepting that your life needs to suck. So for example, like when I came to Rust, you would be writing make files to compile Rust code. And I looked at that and was like, this is not what I want to be doing. And uh, through the work of many people, we convinced Mozilla to invest in paying Yehuda to build Cargo. And that was like, we're used to this tool. We want this tool in this language too. And so that's played its way out in a number of different things where the sort of lower level programmers are kind of used to things being complicated and hard. And as Rubyists, we're like, no, things should be easy and fun. Let's figure out a way to make it easy and fun while still like respecting the low level nature of the problem at hand. And that's definitely had a huge impact on Rust development. Yeah, I want to kind of go along similar lines of that and say that I was a little bit worried when we first started talking about this podcast that instead of being called like Ruby after Ruby, it was going to be called something like Ruby is dead to me or whatever. And uh, I feel exactly the opposite of that. Like uh, I still use Ruby every day in my job. We have uh, like pretty much four main applications and the largest one of them is ruby uh the other three are elixir and we do write a lot of elixir but uh i write a lot of ruby too and i still use it and i still love it and like steve i have a tattoo so forever you know like it's a part of me then uh there are things that ruby does well that elixir sucks at uh so for example as a scripting language uh, multiple times now, I've done some scripting in Elixir, and you can totally do it. And I'm not saying it's terrible, but there are things that Ruby just does so much better as a scripting language uh, from its handling of standard in and standard out and building standard Unix filters and just stuff like that that Elixir wasn't designed for because it's designed to run these uh, you know, uh, sets of processes and supervision trees, which allow it to do things like run forever and are amazing, but it just kind of runs counter to the, uh, you know, the scripting goal of slap these three things together and get something done. And Ruby's better at that. And so the one thing I think I've really learned from seeing the different communities is how much I appreciate each community for it's what is unique to it and what it teaches me and how I can bring those things together. Uh, as I work in other communities, I can bring the good parts of Elixir to Ruby or the good parts of Ruby to Elixir. And uh, I, I think in general, that makes me feel that I want to be kinder to everyone's language community because I'm sure they have something that I don't. Definitely. I want to super, super reemphasize that sentiment. But the first part of that, I hyper empathize with that like so much. Like, Okay. Well, that does seem like a good place to wrap up. Where can people reach you online uh, if they want to talk to you about these other uh, language communities or anything else, Steve? So uh, I'm happy to get emails from people, but it can take a couple months to reply sometimes because I'm terrible at email. So um, that's like fine if you have something that's not hyper immediate. I'm always on Twitter, and so if you follow me on Twitter, I'm sorry, slash thank you. Um, but you can tweet at me without following me, and uh, I always you know, like to talk on there, too. So those are generally the easiest sort of ways to get a hold of me, for sure. Steve Klobnik on Twitter. Yes. Right? Okay, and James? I'm also on Twitter. It's uh, at J-E-G, the number two. Uh, for James, I would grade a second. 
I am moderately active there. I do try to respond to most things. Um, if you follow me right now, you'll probably see me tweeting a lot about Gig City Elixir, which is a conference that I'm hoping to run in uh, October about Elixir. So if you want to learn more about Elixir, or you're getting into it, and you want to see what makes it great, it might be fun to come out to that conference. It's in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Great. Well, uh, thank you both. This has been a lot of fun. And uh, that's it. Tech Done Right is a production of TableXI and is hosted by me, Noel Rappin. I'm at Noel Rapp on Twitter, and TableXI is at TableXI. The podcast is edited by Mandy Moore. You can reach her on Twitter at the Ruby Rep. Tech Done Right can be found at techdonerite.io or downloaded wherever you get your podcasts. You can send us feedback or ideas on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right. You can also contribute to the conversation on our website. TableXI is a UX design and software development company in Chicago with a 15-year history of building websites, mobile applications, and custom digital experiences for everyone from startups to storied brands. Find us at TableXI.com where you can learn more about working with us or working for us. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Tech Done Right. Right.